Welcome to Things Fall Apart at the Human Restoration Project. I'm Chris. Thanks for joining me today. A special thank you to our patrons that make this podcast possible, two of which are Mike Laughlin and Skylar Prim. Thanks for keeping us afloat. You can find all of our podcasts, resources for free for educators, as well as all of our thoughts on our website at humanrestorationproject.org. You can also find a link to our Patreon to support us and keep us going. Thanks in advance. Our resource releasing at the end of this month, details gradeless assessment. Everything from the benefits to going gradeless to a plethora of different assessment options, as well as ways to convert into actual grades if a school or district requires it. So look out for that. The resource we just released, called Don't Get the Wrong Idea, explores different myths and misconceptions that students have, such as how to get into college or the value of an SAT score. You can find that resource for students on our website. Mandy Freilich is the Director of Innovation and Technology in the Ripon Area School District in Wisconsin and author of The Fire Within, Lessons from Defeat that Have Ignited a Passion for Learning. This collection of stories from educators describes how adversity is met with strength and everyone grows as a result. Furthermore, Mandy is a Google for Education certified teacher and ambassador for Canvas LMS, a keynote speaker, presenter, and professional development lead. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate you giving up your time. I'm excited to uh, talk to you about your book. So let's just start off with this first question just to kind of see where the discussion takes us. So it features 11 different stories from 11 different educators, including your own. And at the beginning, you reminisce on why you began the book. You talk about how there's a lot of responsibility on a teacher's shoulders, including your own. And therefore, when we have struggles, it's overwhelming. It makes us vulnerable. Can you just go into further detail about what you hope people take away from the book? Absolutely. So there's a few things um, as as people read the book that I hope they take away. And and I really do think that people read it from, you know, a couple different kinds of lenses. Well, one might be that they've actually gone through something like this. And one might be that they actually haven't. And um, so I think uh, in those two, with those two different lenses, they're going to get very different things out of the book. Um, but overall, um, you know, I really want people to uh, have the courage to tell their own story and to work on destigmatizing mental health. Um, you know, their story is their story, regardless of if they've gone through trauma or adversity or neither, which I don't know if there's many people that haven't, but, uh, you know, um, whether they've, you know, they've gone through that, their stories are different, but all of their stories make up who they are. And, um, usually, uh, stories can involve whether it's their own or somebody else's mental health. So really working on destigmatizing that. So we know it's okay to, to talk about it. Um, another, uh, takeaway would be empathy for kids and just other adults going through these same struggles. So, um, I was, I was very cognizant of my story and trying to allow people into kind of the way my head worked when, you know, things were happening or what I was thinking. And, and I know a lot of the other contributors did as well. And so for me, um, the cognitive piece of knowing what somebody's thinking is really powerful in knowing how they're, or how or why they're reacting. Um, and also can, you know, develop that empathy as well. So, um, 
you know, not all the stories are relatable to kids. I mean, there's obviously a professional adversity in there as well, which which wouldn't be the same. But um, overall, kind of knowing that our kids are going through these stories as well, knowing that we're not alone, that uh, it's it's been just incredible how many people who have reached out to me and and I know to the other contributors as well and have said your story is just the mirror image of mine and for so many years I lived with this I'm totally alone I can't talk about it because nobody's going to understand how I feel and here I said it and now all these people are like oh my gosh the same thing you know the same things happened to me I felt these same things and and it's just, it's made me feel um, less different um, and, and you know, kind of created a community around that. Um, and, you know, there's there's the piece in the book about how the brain works, um, working on trauma and mindfulness. And then I really want to make people aware of secondary traumatic stress and then hope, um, you know, hope that things can get better and that we can take um, take positive pieces out of even you know, the darkest things that happened to us. Yeah. And just to ensure that everyone listening kind of gets what's going on, the book is basically stories of you and other educators going through probably some of the darkest moments or, you know, and how they've kind of affected your life, your lives, recollecting on different issues of mental health and how they stem from serious problems, whether it be from, from parents or bullying in school or even from teachers um, and how that's affected your lives, uh, or really, I think, honestly, probably most people's lives, which is kind of sad. You brought up that idea of destigmatizing and how so many people have reached out to you. And I think that because of how much stigmatizing exists, mental health, as we are well aware, has gone under the radar. And I think there's a shocking number of people that are experiencing issues like this that are not seeking help or are just kind of holding it in because it's not something that people want to talk about, even though it's a major issue. And schools are extra guilty of this because schooling already has a layer in between teacher and student. People want to focus primarily on academics and how how a child is doing based on a grade, but they're not focused as much on social and emotional well-being. I mean, that movement really didn't even surface until the 1960s. And even then it went away and now it's starting to come back again, or it's sadly being substituted for what I would consider to be like shallow mindfulness practice. So Mm -hmm. like doing yoga in the classroom, for example, I'm not saying that's bad, but it's not an overall philosophical look at the major issue, which is why are the kids not happy to begin with? And what structural changes can we make to school in order to make it more, well, part of it's bearable, but also more loving, uh, which school should be that kind of thing. You have to go there. <laughs> it's not meant to be a prison, right? It's meant to be something that you enjoy doing. Um, and that's not going to get solved if everyone just pretends everything's okay for everyone. You know, it's sad, but it, it, it's true that anxiety and depression rates are rising, especially amongst teenagers and uh, young adults. And there's a lot of different reasons why this might be the case. People point to social media. You're increasingly connected, but you're also more disconnected because you're not, you know, having that person-to-person moment. You also have the political landscape is uh, not going too great. (laughs) Um, And, you know, there's just a lack of focus on mental health issues in general. There's that stigma that exists. 
So based off your own experiences, you've already alluded to this, do you think it's easier than to talk to students and relate to the problems that they're going through based on the trauma that you've suffered? Um, yeah, I really do. And also adults with, with mental health issues as well. Um, and and people, I, f I feel a little bit like people who have gone through a very traumatic experience have this sort of like beacon that brings them together. Mm -hmm. um, and, and a lot of times I'll find myself um, becoming friends with somebody who, when digging deeper, we have very um, similar circumstances. But it is it is easier for me to um, to talk to anybody with those things because I know the right words to say. Um, I know that assuming that, you know, like I, you know, I've said it before, if, if you have anxiety, I know telling you not to be nervous is not going to help. You know, mm -hmm. um, I also know that helping people find raise ways to self-regulate is super important. Um, people need strategies to deal with these things. And in part of the issue in dealing with these things for, you know, teachers and, and educators is that we are not trained to deal with these. We're not sure. psychologists, we're not counselors. And, and we really don't even know how to provide such personal strategies for kids. Um, and I agree, I think, I think yoga, um, breathing and those types of things are very, very low level of mindfulness. However, I think we just we have not provided people with mm -hmm. what they need in order to do those things in the classroom. Um, and um, this year, our school district actually hired a part time mindfulness coach. Um, she has been uh, she went for a certification, we spent kind of a lot quite a bit of money on getting her certified. Um, and she's going to be part time in the classroom part time uh, mindfulness coach. And I'm really interested to see what she what she brings because I have not personally been in her classroom uh, since she had started the certification, but I have heard uh, that the difference in her classroom is just it's it's very 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 different from before till after she has implemented the mindfulness. Yeah, and talking to the kids, I mean, like I said, I just know the right words to say. Um, I mean, not all the time. We're not, none of us are perfect all the time, but for the most part, I can. Um, I had a friend of mine recently whose sister um, tried to commit suicide and she was obviously distraught and, and didn't, you know, went through all of those kinds of feelings of what was she thinking and how could she do this? And, and, and so I, I tried to explain to her in the most academic way possible how some like how my brain thinks of that kind of thing you know how my brain works and it's it's this constant battle between um the logical and emotional and um you know and, and i i hope that by being able to work really hard in in uh, voicing how my brain works that that helps other people understand the way their own bodies are working to be completely honest it's a it's a tough read in a sense not because it's you know, difficult to understand, but because it's so emotionally heavy. I mean, these are things that we need to talk about, but at the same time, the reason why people don't usually want to talk about them is it's, it's hard, right? It's, it's harder than just reading a bunch of books and studying the benefits of mindfulness. You have to actually emotionally take in what other people are going through because you can't really empathize until you really know 
the traumatic events that exist, especially if you're not someone who has had as rough as a situation as many people have gone through in your book or, you know, as many, many, many students go through. Mm-hmm. And training someone to do that in a traditional PD environment seems like it would be quite difficult to do. Like it would be very difficult to lecture on uh, or complete a worksheet on true mindfulness. You'd almost have to hear it from someone, someone's personal experience, which is what you're doing in your book. So it's a good read. Uh, But (laughs) it's one of those things where it almost has to go back to teacher training and what is the goal of the teacher, right? In, In my view and in our organization's view, the goal of the teacher isn't to be the content distributor their goal is to be the the mentor or the coach or the guide. They don't necessarily need to really know that much content information. More so, they need to know how to learn and how to help people. Uh, their, their goal is to be there to be the facilitator, which is so shockingly different than the traditional model of teaching, which would be someone giving a quiz every single Friday and people just kind of along for the ride. And especially as our world has become increasingly easy to find information on the fly, that's becoming less and less relevant to becoming a memorizer of facts. We need people that are emotionally capable to handle working with students, almost like maybe non-certified guidance counselors in a way, Mm -hmm. Um, especially since at many points, if you are a teacher practicing mindfulness uh, in the classroom or very open emotionally, you tend to be many students' guidance counselors, um, mm-hmm. for better or for worse. I mean, I've had, I'm sure you've had as well, plenty of experiences with students like coming in and having to deal with some pretty serious issues and just being like, well, I'll try my best. Yeah. <laughs> and then sending it to the guidance counselor as soon as I can, at least. <laughs> uh, right. because, not because I don't love them, but because um, that terrifies me. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's, it's important that we're able to at least try to help people um, because that's their human beings. Of course, you know, we would expect that we could help people uh, in general. So I I don't want to like tell your story because I think that's kind of awkward given that, you know, you're here. (laughs) It's just kind of, it's kind of a weird thing to do. But in summary, you had a lot of emotional issues growing up because of an abusive family or a family member. And there's a point in your book where you talk about um, when you work with adults, like coworkers, for example, you don't want them to be emotional or wildly like you like them to be very stable and you incorporate that into your classroom as well. You want to be like that, you know, the solid thing that people can latch onto. And that's pretty common teaching strategy. People always say that you're supposed to kind of be the face of what you want to do. But I brought in this quote and I sent it to you beforehand, but it's from John Holt. And John Holt was, for anyone that's not familiar, a guy in the 50s, 60s and early 70s who was a huge part of the unschooling movement. He was hypercritical traditional education. And he said a lot of really interesting things. Um, And a quote from his book, which is from How Children Fail, is almost not necessarily the antithesis of that idea, but I'll kind of let you hear, hear your thoughts on this. So he says, there's a paradox here. Many of the adults who hide themselves from children, pretending to be some idealized notion of quote unquote teacher, might well say they do this in order to make themselves consistent and predictable to children. The real me, they might say, is capricious, moody, up one day and down the next. It's too hard for the child to have to deal with that changeable, unpredictable real person. So instead, I will give them an invented, rule-following, and therefore wholly predictable person. And it works exactly backwards. 
children, unless they are very unlucky and live at home with adults pretending to be model parents, which may be a growing trend, are used to living with real, capricious, up one day and down one day adults. And with their sharpness of observation and keenness of mind, they learn how to predict these strange, huge creatures and how to read all their confusing signs. So, you know, in summary, he's basically talking about how being that kind of what he would say robotic kind of singular mood teacher actually does students a disservice. What are your thoughts on, on that quote? Uh, well, I love this quote for so many reasons. Um, and, and I think it's true. Um, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with having the desire to be, uh, the one constant stable thing in some kids' lives. Um, you know, the reasons why uh, we keep the mental health issues under wraps, it's, I mean, it's really done with the best of intentions. Um, I don't, I, I think that there, there are ways to show kids your emotional side without dragging them into some of the symptoms of of a, a mental health disorder. You know, there, there, there are ways to still show your emotion age appropriately to the kids, um, without showing that, uh, you know, if you're working with little ones, well, I'm, I'm very, very nervous today. I feel like today I might need to take some extra, extra deep breaths, you know, because, um, my, my, my dog isn't feeling well. And, and so I'm, I'm just a little feeling nervous about that today. Um, obviously age appropriately. Um, but I always say that, you know, I have these core beliefs about education that I've kind of developed over time. And, one of them is that uh, we need to model be the behavior that we want to see. And um, some might interpret that as being like that, that kind of no emotion, robotic, being calm, mm -hmm. cool, collected, you know, organized, always smiling and happy as, as being what we want to see. But what I really want to see is, is um, the ability to self-regulate and, and I want, you know, I want kids to monitor their feelings. I want them to have strategies to deal with those feelings. Um, they need to know when to talk to somebody and to be honest about what they're thinking. And the only way that they're going to do that is if the teacher is modeling that. Um, you know, and and the kids, the kids are unbelievably smart and sensitive to the people around them. And, and they're going to be able to spot a phony a mile away, you know, um, but they're, they're, it's a, it's a balance. It's a pendulum. You know, it's, you can't just be on one side where you're robotic and, and running, you know, there needs to be emotion in education. It's why most of us got, got into it is because we loved learning. We loved kids. Um, but it also can't be the completely emotional, uh, side of a mental health issue as well, where you're actually dragging the kids down, obviously. So, it needs to, it does need to be that balance. Yeah, I love that philosophy. I think that a lot of it just comes down to transparency. Uh, it, I know personally when I was in school, I remember consistently the teachers that were the most robotic, the ones that were always kind of on it. Those were actually not the teachers I typically enjoyed having because one, they tended to be kind of boring. Um, <laughs> they also tended to be, they just felt non-authentic. Like mm -hmm. there's something very humanizing about going in front of your classroom and saying, it doesn't have to be anything crazy. Just like, I'm tired today. We're mm -hmm. going to do this because I'm tired. <laughs> like mm -hmm. that might sound like you're being a quote unquote bad teacher. But to me, that's just being a person. Like you don't have to be this superhero. 
you're someone who is relating to them as a fellow human being. And it sounds so obvious to me in my mind, but at the same time, we've kind of held teachers on this pedestal. You talk about this in the book as well, that they can't show any emotion whatsoever because if they do, it's weakness. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you're the kind of person that's running your classroom in the sense that you're the authoritative ruler and you show weakness, that's going to be a big deal. Kids are going to revolt. But if you if you are someone who is constantly human and I'm not saying every single day you're going to go and be like, uh, we're doing worksheets today, guys, because I'm tired all the time. That's ridiculous. (laughs) Right. Um, But there is a certain place for showcasing some form of emotion as well. And I want to add this on those teachers that tend to always be on it. The days where they're not on it and you catch them on a bad day tend to be very destabilizing. I remember so many times those were always the teachers that had anger management problems. Uh, And, you know, it'd be like happy smiles, happy smiles, happy smiles. And then like week 30, the teacher would just flip out of nowhere. And that was like almost traumatizing. Like I remember like it was just like, I don't know like what to expect from you anymore. As opposed to, you know, the teacher that intentionally distances themselves and say like, you know, you guys are going to do this on your own today, Uh, which is that's okay to me. Like that just makes sense. Right. And well, and when I taught, so I taught elementary school and, and there were times where I distinctly remember, um, you know, we would be going through a really tough math lesson and let, and, and let's face it. If it's, if it's tough for the kids, it's usually tough for us too. Like math was not my strong suit and we would go through a tough math lesson. I'd be like, all right, guys, I like, I need a break from this. Let's go play kickball for half an hour. And Mm -hmm. we would go play kickball. And I, I, Every single time, I never regretted doing it, uh, but every time I would feel guilty afterward. I would be like, shoot, now I'm behind in my math lesson. How am I going to catch this up? What if the kids didn't get what they needed? You know, um, I always felt guilty about it because the the overall feeling is you keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. You never take those breaks. Um, but, you know, I, I loved laughing with my kids. That was one of my favorite things about teaching and you can't do that when you have put yourself on such a, you know, even even if your kind of persona that you've developed is happy, happy, happy. Are you seriously happy all that time? You know, yeah. I I wanted to be um, honest enough with my kids that they knew that if I if I needed help in a moment, you know that that I needed to take that moment for myself. And every single time, without fail, my kids were there for me above and beyond any adult that was around me, you know, and they, they understood it and were empathetic and were sweet and kind. And, um, you know, and and like I said, that's those connections. That's why I got into teaching. The idea that you just brought up of that philosophy of quote unquote, wasting time, uh, is incredibly valuable. Um, I mean, any research will show you that especially young children and adults or adolescents, I mean, need those breaks uh, as well as adults um, in order to learn properly. The kids will learn more academics if you give them more breaks, right? Like you, you should be considering play as a core component of your classroom. And people conflate that a lot of times with saying like, well, I play review games or uh, you know, my kids are up and around, uh, doing, uh, uh, what are they called? The, uh, I can't remember what it's called. Like when there's posters on the wall and like you walk around and you take notes on them or whatever. Um, so, you know, like there's this idea of like conflating 
being active in the class and taking breaks was something that's truly academic, it, there couldn't be something further than the truth. It, going outside and just being outside for the heck of it or playing a game or uh, spending a plethora of days on team building exercises and playing games with each other beyond just the first three days of school. I, I don't understand why a teacher would collect a note card with all these cool things that kids love to do on the first day of school. And then a month in, no one knows whatever happened to those note cards uh, because <laughs> nothing of that's ever coming up in the class. It's just business as usual. And if you're going to develop a true relationship with a child, you have to actually do things that people do in relationships. Right. Uh, you know, a, a parent is not constantly drilling their kid on what to do in their lives. They spend quality time with them. Um, it would make sense that a teacher who is there for a pretty sizable amount of a child's life um, would be spending that time truly getting to know them through these experiences. And that sounds like a very academic way of putting it. Because, I mean, when push comes to shove, you're just being a person. Again, it's just, it, that's right. what people do. <laughs> it, it shouldn't be something out of the ordinary for that right. to be occurring. I, I think it's I think it's interesting, though. You know, um, have you heard of um, the Neuralink by Elon Musk? Uh, kind of, but go ahead. Okay. So um, I, I, had, I was speaking with some teachers, and um, I had brought up, uh, this Neuralink that Elon Musk has come up with. And, and, uh, when I learned about it, it's been about a year now. Um, it was already, already established and everything. It's a, it's a growing company. And what he wants to do is he wants to put a um, chip in the brains of people who, um, he wants to start out with people who have disabilities in order to give them some of their functionality back mm -hmm. that they've lost, but eventually put it in, in, you know, everybody's brain and it, and it essentially works as a computer. And one of his reasonings is that, um, he feels like artificial intelligence is going to grow so quickly. He wants to give humans, the human race, a chance yeah. to compete with it. So, um, I had, and, and he says, um, you know, everyone's like, Oh, 30 years out. Nope. Eight years yeah. <laughs> he wants to have it available for general public in eight years. Now, I don't know if this will really happen or not. Um, the guy's pretty smart, so I, I don't <laughs> put much past him, but, um, I had brought this up with my, some of my teachers and their first reaction to that was, well, teachers will become extinct. Nobody, you know, nobody will need them anymore. And, and I, I thought to myself, you know, if you if your reaction is that once kids know all the content, teachers will be obsolete, what are you doing right now to focus mm -hmm. on kids' social emotional well-being? Like, do you focus so heavily on content that you really wouldn't know what to do if kids had a computer in their brains? Sure. Because right now most of them have computers in their hands. So for me, you know, my kind of reaction to that well that's amazing. I, because I get to work on, you know, deeper thinking skills and I get to work on, um, relationships and social emotional stuff and, and all of those things that computers can't teach us. And I don't have to teach them the facts anymore. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, that's amazing. But if your first reaction to that is nobody will need me, then it makes me question what your focus is in your classroom. Yeah. That's a, fascinating take 
Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. For, for some reason, I can't get past the... I, I don't know if you've seen Altered Carbon on Netflix, but uh, it's kind of a dystopian reality of what that could potentially bring, but that, that has nothing to do with what you're talking about. Just I, I can't get that idea out of my head. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of dark consequences that could come from us uh, like starting to like download Matrix-style oh, ideas, but regardless, no it was a good point. Um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, then I, I'm curious then how we actually incorporate these techniques in the classroom. Um, because obviously, I don't personally think that most teachers do this in a devious or nefarious manner. I think that most of them don't understand that either one, that's not their role and they don't feel like it should be, or two, they don't really know what to do and they're scared of doing it, myself included. I mean, there's been many times mm -hmm. where there's been issues where I've just you know, chickened out because it's scary. Like if like a kid mm -hmm. is losing it or crying or mad or upset, your first instinct as an educator is to just send them to the guidance counselor and hope for the best and cross your fingers and then never talk about it again. <laughs> right. Whereas there are a lot of techniques that you can use in your classroom to get people to open up emotionally beyond just that logical thing that you're trying to get out normally. And the, the first thing I thought of and it's an activity I've done in my class many times, is an activity from Ashanti Branch, and it's featured in The Mask You Live In, which is also on Netflix, a documentary. It's really good. It's all about recognizing and empowering specifically male students, the documentary, but it could be used for anyone. And the activity is students write on this mask they've created out of paper on one side how they want the world to view them. So typically kids will write like cool or nice or whatever. Um, and then on the other side, they tell them to write down anonymously words that they are scared of people knowing about them or things they don't want the world to see. And then they crumple it up, they throw it randomly and kids pick it up and they read um, both the things that they want to see and uh, things that they don't want to see. And usually, and I've done this in my class many times, 99% of students have something very, um, something that you people typically want to talk about on the other side of that sheet of paper. And it's very moving, but it's also very depressing to see all the horrible things either students think about themselves or the things that have happened to them or just in general, the trauma that exists across, you know, human life. I'm curious then practices such as that are they good to introduce into the classroom like are, are there specific ways that we should address emotional well-being without making the problem worse per se so i i'm i'm certainly no expert on sel um my my most of my expertise comes from just experiencing it um i think i think there's a few things that can be done the first is um just kind of stepping back into the teacher role, teachers need to be just as cognizant about what's going on with them um, as they are with their students because they cannot address uh, the SEL requirements of the kids until they're taking care of themselves. Um, if we are burnt out, if we have secondary traumatic stress, if we are going through some sort of adversity that that we're dealing with, it's very, very difficult to then take on somebody else's as well. Um, so I think that that's one of the most important things, um, actually, that can be done in a classroom as a teacher, making sure that they are taking care of themselves. As far as the kids go, one of the things that I know 
that I was guilty of as a teacher. And, and since I've left the classroom, I've learned so much. I actually left the classroom because I was burnt out. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, but I didn't know it. I didn't know that's what it was. And, um, I've learned so much since then. And, and in reflecting on some of the things I did, I, I would do anything to go back and change the little itty bitty moments that I remember brushing a kid off <laughs> where I, I had one, one year in particular where I had girls that were very, um, you know, it was, they were kind of known as the, the drama girls, mm -hmm. right. And like one whole entire class of, of girls who it was, she was looking at me from across the room, tell her to stop looking at me, you know, she was, she was giving me the evil eye. She took my book, you know, like mm -hmm. all of these constant things. And then it would continue out on the playground and they would come in. And, um, there were many, many times that I did something like this. So-and-so what happened? So-and-so what happened? Okay. You know, you shouldn't do that. And you know, you shouldn't do that. Say you're sorry. Mm -hmm. And, and it was because, and, and why? Because I had to get onto the math lesson or I had to, you know, um, I had a million other things to do. I had 10 kids waiting to talk to me and, and I just needed it to be done quickly. But it's those little things that we do like that, they impact kids forever and ever. Mm -hmm. And, and essentially what I did there is I not only blew off their concerns, I made them feel unimportant. I didn't at all solve their issue. Um, I did not teach them how to work through it. I did not acknowledge the hurt that they felt um, because we were adults and, and I can't tell you how many times I've heard adults say, uh, well, just wait until they have grown up problems, you know, but perception really is reality. And, and, and what they're perceiving their reality to be is all wrapped up in their friends and, and, and what their world is, you know, and blowing those kinds of things off. I was, I was definitely not helping, helping the situation because they interpreted that to be a real issue at the time. Um, and one of the, like, I, I, I use this as kind of an example. I'll never forget when I was, I was in sixth grade and this is what I try to do. I try to remember, I try to put myself back to when I was there, you know, um, when I was in sixth grade, I was kind of awkward and, and I went into a new school and I didn't have a lot of friends and these girls kind of, um, adopted me as their own. And, um, and I felt so lucky to have these particular girls cause they were funny and, and at one point in sixth grade, one of them pulled me aside and she said, Mandy, I, I need to take a moment to help to, you know, to teach you how to tight roll your pants. And, and she, and she showed me that kindness. She helped me tight roll my pants. And, and, you know, it's, it's, it's those little itty bitty things. And now it's a, a girl and not another teacher, but a teacher also didn't come up to us and say, what are you doing? You know, mm -hmm. and go, go sit down and, and you guys don't need to be talking right now. The teacher also didn't do that. So it's sometimes those little things that we do and do not do uh, that make the, the biggest difference in kids, you know? Yeah. There's, there's so much to unpack there. I, I love that notion of it. People think that this is a grandiose idea, um, but a lot of it's common sense. I know in one of the stories, I can't recall the specific name, but one of the student or one of the adults remembers as a student a situation where I believe it was where a a teacher made them present in front of the class their failing grade, um, the fact that they did poorly, and how that was very traumatic to them. And I think a lot of teachers, for better or for worse, believe that you learn from failure in a very dark way. Uh, there's a big difference between 
you know, acknowledging that you're not doing things well versus embarrassing someone to do better. Right. And there's there's that mentality of uh, it's I don't I don't want to overgeneralize, but there's that coach mentality of making someone do it because when they were a kid, you know, they just got pushed through their problems. Mm -hmm. And that's not really truly how it works because sadly a lot of those people that went through those situations have a lot of traumatic problems they just don't talk about them because they're they're too macho or they're you know they just want to keep it within mm -hmm. and i realize it's a giant overarching statement about what occurs but there are a lot of situations in school i, I remember so many times in middle and high school where myself or a friend or just anyone in my class was called out or singled out or embarrassed because of something they were doing, which in retrospect was not a big deal at all, but because the teacher felt so in control and so just uh, autonomous over their classroom that they wanted to demean others. Um, and I don't know if that was intentional, but they just were, it's again, that control factor. Um, mm -hmm. In that in that way that they want to constantly move on to that next thing because there's that constant rush coupled with probably their own burnout and unlikeliness of enjoying their job much that day. Um, it all just kind of manifests itself into a major problem that a lot of students and teachers are facing. And the other thing you said, which I, I thought was a really good point, was that teachers feel really burned out because of all the things that they're doing. And because of that, the problems that they might have might exacerbate. They might, one, quit, or two, become more emotionally unstable amongst their students. They might just become very robotic and try to hide it, or they might lash out more, become more of a dictator, because they're just kind of done with it. They're, they're just, you know, their flame has extinguished. Mm -hmm. They no longer want to go through all those motions because they think it's too much. And ironically, a lot of the ways in which schools are trying to push for academic achievement are making teachers that are great teachers leave. For example, um, the first thing that comes to mind is grading. T to me, grading is not really assessment. They're very much different from each other. And the mm -hmm. teacher that spends every single day grading 100 papers and never has any time for themselves is doing themselves and their students a disservice. It's not making their kids necessarily amazing learners, and it's certainly putting a lot of pressure on the teacher. To me, it's not normal at all for a teacher to go home and have hours of work to do. Right. They might push themselves to do that because they're just interested in their craft, but it shouldn't be a requirement that every single day I go home and spend three or four hours on grading things. It doesn't make any sense. And I think that I would argue a majority of teachers feel like they should be doing that because the narrative has been put forth that teachers should be doing that or else you're a bad teacher. Mm -hmm. And that seems to be like a, a just a, a major overarching problem that connects itself very heavily to emotional and social well-being. Right. Absolutely. Well, and, and the other thing, too, you know, is that we um, – I have this I have this other book coming out later that it's it's called The Hierarchy of Needs for Innovation and Divergent Thinking and hmm. and basically what it is is it's um it's a structure an organizational structure to give teachers a better um a better shot at being innovative because I think that they have these teachers so much on their plates but we add more by not having the structures in place for them to be able to teach right hmm. we've got I 
you know, if you walk into a school that has a really negative culture and, um, you know, or a really negative climate and, and the culture is just not, um, it's not very strong. And, and you're trying to work in that environment where you're listening to teachers complain about kids and you're listening, you know that your, your administrator's not supporting you. You have all these other things going on in your head um, that's taking up kind of the brain space that you need to take care of other things. And I think that goes for, for personally as well. If you are dealing with all of these other, um, all of these other issues that, that actually could be resolved um, in, you know, climate and culture and leadership and things like that, you're not taking the time to deal with personal issues or you're working extra to make up for that, or, um, you're taking on extra duties in order to, to kind of balance that out. And it's, it's just not giving you the headspace to deal with other things. So, um, absolutely. I think that's true. And, and one of the, one of the major, um, symptoms of true burnout is detachment from the things you love. So it makes sense that if you if you love teaching and it's what's burning you out, you're going to detach from it. Yeah, I mean, that sounds fascinating. We'll have to have you back on to talk about that book uh, <laughs> when it comes out because that sounds absolutely incredible. Hey there, we hope you're enjoying the podcast. The Human Restoration Project stays alive because of generous donations by our patrons. Take a second and check out our website at humanrestorationproject.org for more podcasts, our blog, and all sorts of free resources that we've designed for educators. And if you love what we do, consider supporting us on Patreon. For as little as $1 a month, Patreon supporters receive goodies from being listed in the credits of our resources to early access to what we do. Thanks in advance. I want to move into, really quickly, the criticism I feel like would be most applicable to the book. And a lot of times when people talk about uh, talking about depression or uh, anxiety or even suicide, uh, people conflate that with almost glorifying mental illness. And what I mean by that is uh, uh, people are probably familiar with when 13 Reasons Why came out, um, there was studies that somewhat showed a correlation to increase suicide rates or increased numbers of diagnosed depression because people were either acting out their sadness because the, it, it kind of related to them in a way or because people started to talk about these problems, they were concerned that they might be more prone to act on them because it's coming to the forefront. So what would be kind of the response to that concern that the more we talk about emotional issues, the more likely those emotional issues might well up? So I guess I guess I would question whether is it that there's more emotional issues or is that that people are becoming more aware and so they're then asking for help or seeking help or doing you know something to to act out on that and you know it's kind of the same thing um like when we started diagnosing autism right sure. um all of a sudden there was this huge spike in kids diagnosed with autism while were there more kids with autism or were there more diagnoses of the issue because we knew what it was and we talked about it? Um, you know, I don't, I don't really know, but I think, I do think that it's really important for people to understand that they're not alone. Um, I think people often who have mental illness feel like their feelings are weird. Um, and, and I can tell you that I've got, I have thoughts run through my brain all the time that even I 
think to myself, seriously, like <laughs> that's what you're thinking about right now, you know, um, and, and I deal with it myself. So I, I should expect those things. I really think that it's about bringing awareness to, um, you know, to, to those types of thoughts and feelings and making sure that people understand that they're not alone and that there is help and that, that it is a thing, you know, uh, we can't, we can't hide this anymore. Um, you know, if, if I had a broken leg and I tried hiding it from people, people <laughs> be like, what are you doing? Why are you trying to hide a broken leg? I don't understand. You know, um, it's, it's important for people to understand it's a medical diagnosis. People need help for this. And, and the more that we try to push it under the rug, um, the less likely that people are going to get that, that, you know, get the help they need. So I'm certainly not trying to, um, sensationalize, uh, mental health issues, um, but I do think that especially in education, it has been pushed under the rug for so long and we are going to have, um, an entire generation of both kids and teachers who have these issues, who just don't know what to do with them because we've yeah. spent so long not talking about them. I agree wholeheartedly. I would assume personally that the majority of young adults suffer from some form of mental uh, crisis um, in some way, shape, or form, because there's just so many different things to be concerned with. Uh, you would just imagine that at some point someone has suffered some form of trauma, um, and if they haven't, I would imagine that th that amount of structure that they would always be okay would lead to some other emotional problems of some sort, um, because you know too much of a good thing can sometimes be a bad thing as well. Right, and I do, I I do really, really. One of the things that I emphasize is that, um, especially when it comes to trauma and adversity and things like that, um, that is completely uh, perception. You mm. know, it's in and. Um, their perception again is their reality and it is not our job to judge whether something should or should not be traumatic. Um, it is simply our job to, to shift their perception, um, you know, to try to help them with that, to, to, uh, try to shift their perception to see that maybe, you know, um, maybe they need help or maybe they need strategies or, or maybe, maybe it wasn't, maybe give them facts so that it wasn't really what they thought, but it's, it's not our job to tell them they're, they're right or they're wrong. That to me should be the number one qualifier for a teacher should be that they love their students. Right. Uh, and that's, it's a, that's a strong word choice, but I, I do think that does really matter. Um, there's a major difference between a teacher that went into the profession because they think that they're content is so important that everyone has to know it versus someone who goes in because they really want to help kids. That's a, a, a giant difference. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there's a, there's a place for people that are very much content focused. And I would argue that would be either professors or maybe even like a curriculum designer, um, mm -hmm. but not someone who is just instilling upon the minds of others that banking model of education where you think, your sole goal is to invest in students for this greater outcome instead of seeing them as a whole person that I guess would be growth mindset way of looking at it um, in general. What then do you feel is the overall next step, the next goal for teachers in the classroom? 
for this this mindfulness thing? What resources would they use? What uh, technique could they incorporate tomorrow? What could they take away from this book or this podcast even that could make them better at what they're already doing? I really, really want educators to begin to figure out, you know, how to regulate their own emotions and how to be self, you know, self-regulators and, and watch for changes in how they feel so that they can catch things early. Um, because I, I do feel like I, I am 100% that everything we do is for students. Um, but in order to get there, we have to take care of ourselves and we have ignored that for a really, really long time. Um, and so being aware of things like how, um, personal and professional adversity, uh, just adversity, not necessarily trauma can, can affect the way you're thinking about your job or, um, being, a being aware, reading about burnout. Um, I had, I, I had this absolutely amazing interview with this brand new teacher. Um, she was in, incredible. And we were so excited to get her into our district. But the one thing that she said in her interview is she said, I know about burnout and I love my job so much that I don't believe I will ever have it. And <laughs> very naive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and I thought, well, that would be something her, her mama would probably be super proud of. <laughs> you know, I, it was a red flag for me because I was, I was so there. I loved teaching and I never, ever thought there was any way, um, that burnout would happen to me. And, um, so just making, making sure that they understand that burnout is a, a true thing. It's an actual thing. It's not just like being in a meeting too long, you know, mm -hmm. um, and recognizing the effects from that. And then also the secondary traumatic stress is really important. Um, knowing that just working with kids who have been through traumatic experiences can bring on, um, you know, symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder is, it, you know, just kind of that idea where knowledge is, pow is power and making sure mm -hmm. that you're, you're listening to your body and that you know what the effects of some of these are. Uh, one thing that makes me think of um, as well, obviously start with self-regulation as you're, you're saying, but I think too about how teachers regulate their emotions towards students, mm -hmm. um, like not seeing students' actions as malicious automatically, like, for example, a student is late to class. That does not mean that they are out to get you or that you should be mad at them. I mean, there's a time and place for, for discipline, but there's also a time and place for empathy as well. And, you know, restorative justice and understanding the reason why it's a problem versus dishing out a punishment instantaneously or those sarcastic remarks like, oh, thanks for joining us today, Chris, you know, that, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. it, it just gets underneath kids' skins and it, it first off, it will make them embarrassed and sad and probably not like you very much it'll probably make the problem worse to for a kid that is having a bad day or is going through some kind of problem those kind of statements and those kind of overarching assumptions about what a kid is trying to do are going to hurt them a lot more than you might think from that very minor action i'm not saying that every single classroom has to be kumbaya and like you know teachers can't ever punish a kid in some way for doing something wrong but there has to be a level of empathy in everything that you're doing um, and kind of assume the best in many ways. Absolutely. Well, and, and what would what would a teacher say 
Um, you know, I really think that I, I think that those types of things like blaming kids for stuff like that, uh, like like they're doing it to them on purpose. I really do think that those are some of the first signs of becoming disengaged from the profession, mm-hmm. um, because, you know, our focus is supposed to be students. And so if you start blaming them for things like they're doing it on purpose, you have forgotten how you got to where you are in the first place. Um, but, you know, the other thing is how would you feel if you walked into a faculty meeting and you were five minutes late, maybe because you were working with a parent or maybe because you were going to the bathroom and you weren't feeling well or something. And, mm-hmm. and, and you walked the in there and, <laughs> I know, right? and the administrator looked at you and said, well, thanks for joining us today. Yeah. You know, so nice of you to, to, you know, bestow your presence on us. And Mm -hmm. like, what would you ever say if somebody truly said you would be dumbfounded and mortified and angry? Um, And why would we expect kids to feel any different if we treat them that way? Yeah. I mean, arguably they would come out worse uh, because they're not as used to it. I know how I would react. I get pissed. Right. (laughs) Me too. Uh, So, I mean, I I wouldn't get mad at a student if they did the same. I I kind of relate. Yeah. That's, that's a, a great point. Again, I would encourage anyone to, to check out this book. I think it's very well written. I think that the the points are very well made. Again, it's not a happy read. <laughs> yeah, I don't think you're going to read this and go like, like man, I feel relaxed after reading this book. Um, <laughs> that's not that. I mean, I had to take a few breaks with this one. Um, but I again, it's that it's a tough pill to swallow, but it's one that's needed. You have to acknowledge these things existing or else they're they're not going to go away on its own, just like any other major problem in the world. You can't just, you know, bury your head in the sand. It's a real problem. And this book does a really good job at um, recognizing, one, that these problems are out there. But two, most likely a lot of people relate to at least one of the stories that are inside. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that. And I, I, I really hope so. That was what we, you know, kind of what I was going for in collecting some of the stories that, that I did is, um, I know that there's, there's more trauma out there besides being abused, you know, having abusive Mm -hmm. parents or anything like that. And, and the contributors, I, I can't say it enough, how incredible they are at allowing you into a very, very personal part of their lives. Um, people have said over and over again, I feel like I've never met this person and I know them so well, um, just from their story. And, and, but you know, that's what we were hoping for. We were hoping for, um, they were going to show their bravery to give others courage. Hope you enjoyed this podcast. We want to connect with you and hear your thoughts. Follow us on Twitter, YouTube, Medium, and other social media. And be sure to check us out on our website at humanrestorationproject.org. If you want to support us in our endeavor of starting a movement towards progressive ed through high-quality resources, consider supporting us on Patreon. Thanks again.